Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris. If you're here for the first time in the pasture and you're kind of joining in on a conversation we've been having throughout this month um, called Mastermind. And we've had three weeks so far of this series. And the series actually carries through March and up to Easter. It's, I believe, perhaps one of the most powerful series that we've done. And just it's kind of practical pushing in to the power of thought life. And that most of us, right, that we, whether we realize this principle or not, we all experience that our lives move in the direction of our strongest thoughts. Our most consistent, persistent, powerful thoughts is the trajectory of our lives. And because of that, we said, you know what, let's, let's press into this idea of our thought life and our, the beliefs that we have and how they're shaping who we're becoming and so if you're new here today, normally I wouldn't say, let me give you a commercial for what we've done before, but the app that Jason referenced um, in the welcome, uh, we put all our previous messages on there. I would encourage you to check out the last couple uh, because they're just so, so helpful in forming the conversation. And if you're like, well, I've missed some today, I'm stepping in and, you know, uh, this is probably not the best Sunday. This is a perfect Sunday. Because what we're doing through Easter is pivoting a little bit. And we've laid the foundation and the framework for the thought life and how to engage the thought life. And what we want to do over the next few weeks is look at uh, what we're going to call mind fields. To, to look at those mind fields that we can find ourselves walking through. And over the next few weeks, we'll look at things like comparison, neg- negative thoughts and negativity and criticism. Because none of us have to experience that, right? And um, today we want to kind of deal with one of the most common of those minefields, the minefield called worry. Again, probably not something that you struggle with, but chances are the person beside you does, even if you don't. And, um, and so you can at least listen to help them. This, this minefield of worry or anxiety is something that some of us are really good at because we do it all the time. But all of us do it some of the time. And this is where I think Jesus' words around worry can be really helpful for us because Jesus spends an incredibly um, significant section of one of his most famous sermons speaking to this issue of worry because he realized the impact and the way it shapes our lives because our lives do move in the, the direction of our strongest thoughts. And if you're one of those people who would be an Olympic-level worrier, then your life does move in the trajectory of that worry. Um, and so what I want to do is I want us to, to engage with Jesus around this conversation that he has with worry. And in stepping into his conversation, what we'll find is some tools and some ways of understanding of this minefield called worry. And in fact, ways that we can even disarm it. Um, if you have the, the app that Jason referenced, if you've already downloaded it, you'll notice in the message notes, this section's already loaded um, if not, it'll be on the screen behind me. And I want to walk through it slowly. Um, for those who've come through the 112, which is a course that we've created to help people be able to, to, to grow, to be equipped in their faith, one of the things that I do in that 112 course is I talk a lot about how to read the Bible. 
Because for many of us, the Bible is a very mysterious, intimidating book because there's no other realm or arena or comparison in your life for the Bible. You typically don't read literature that's 3,000 years old, right? Barely ever do we read books that are old, and by old, I mean like last year old. But all of us went through high school and experienced the tension of Shakespeare, and that was just 500 years ago, right? And so a lot of the passages in the scripture are two, three thousand years old. And so how you engage with it and how you read it is a really important skill to learn. That's why we teach that in the 112. Um, and this, this specific section that we're going to look at is one of those, I think, great reminders of knowing what's going on around it. We teach in the 112, one of the principles when you read the Bible is context is king. It's important to know what's going on around the passage. And Jesus' most famous sermon is the Sermon on the Mount. It's perhaps the most famous, actually it is the most famous researched group of words ever spoken by an individual in human history. That no other speech, sermon, message has ever been studied as in-depth as the Sermon on the Mount. I remember coming across when I was working on my doctorate last year, I actually Part of my research was in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the amount of volumes that have been written to study this passage is amazing. And so here's Jesus' most famous sermon, one of the most researched messages that have ever been delivered by a human or an individual. And what we find in the midst of this is a very specific context that brings insight to the words that we're about to read. The Sermon on the Mount even though it's called the Sermon on the Mount, was more of a lecture given to his immediate followers. Now, the reason that perhaps if you grew up in church or you've even kind of, kind of cursorily read through it, that you have this idea of it's the Sermon on the Mount and huge crowds is because the day that Jesus speaks this on the hillside of uh, kind of bordering the Sea of Galilee, there is a large group of people who've gathered around Jesus. Jesus is one of the most famous itinerant rabbis, speakers, miracle workers of his day. People are kind of beginning to flock to him. And in the course of them showing up one day, they arrive as Jesus is sitting his most, um, his closest followers, what we would eventually call the apostles or the 12 disciples. He's having them sit around him and he's giving them a lesson, a series of lessons on different things that they need to understand and know as they're beginning to follow him. And it's this two kind of layers of crowds. The crowd gathered, leaning in, listening, and the original core of Jesus' followers sitting there getting this lesson that's really helpful to understand why at certain times Jesus is speaking because there's certain levels of the lesson that are going above the disciples' head and hitting the crowd who are listening into this conversation. And then there's a specific things that he says for the original group that's gathered. And this kind of two different audience, I think, is really helpful specifically around this section in worry. You see, Jesus begins with just this verse. Just this verse. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? He begins this section with that statement. This is how he kicks it off. And it's an interesting thing because... As you dig into Jesus' words, what you find is Jesus uses a word here in verse 25 that is rarely ever used in the New Testament. 
he uses a very specific word when he's when he says worry, it's Matthew's writing this word in Greek, and it has a very specific connotation to it. It, it, it sounds a little bit like the word marinate, um, which is not exactly the word, but it kind of fits the, the notion of what Jesus is saying. He's bringing to mind the fact that there is a type, this, this thing that he's calling worry has a negative aspect to it. And I think the reason, as we were about to see, he uses this one word instead of other words he could have used is because worry is an interesting thing that we do. For most of us, we go through life and we never dissect or imagine why is it that we do it in the first place? Why is this an instinct that we have? Where does this come from in the beginning? And see, I think Jesus is calling out at the beginning of his conversation by using this word that there is actually two different things that happens. There's this bigger system at play. There is a part of the system that when your body physiologically or your mind triggers that thought that then cascades into worry, that first trigger, I think, is meant to be part of a good, productive response. There's, I won't call it worry, but let's say if I did, there would be a productive paranoia or a productive worry that produces action. It leads to planning. But then there's another version of this, the, the word that Jesus is using specifically, that's an unproductive worry. It, it leads to inner panic. It leads to your thought life spiraling out of control with all of these scenarios and all of these things that could happen. In fact, the word that he does use actually is similar and invokes this connotation of waking up in the middle of the night. I don't know if you've ever experienced that form of worry where you're sleeping and it's as if while your body is resting, your brain is not. And whether it's, it wakes you up or whether the urge to go to the restroom or a, a horn of a car driving by or whatever, but something causes your body to wake up and when your body wakes up, you realize your mind has been a, awake the entire time. This, this is the word, that feeling that you feel when you wake up in the middle of the night, this fixation and focus on the future that keeps your mind racing, even when your body's not, that's the word Jesus is using here. This is what he wants to discuss, and this is what he wants to talk about. At 8.07 on January 13th, 2018, every single phone in the state of Hawaii lit up with this message. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Now, you probably heard about that last year on the news. But what's interesting is when you dig beneath the headline, what's playing out here is the, the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency worker who gets the slip to say hit enter doesn't know it's not a drill. He's Someone has made a mistake in the process, and as it gets triggered and it's fired, this unscheduled emergency drill becomes a scheduled emergency that should interrupt everything, and he blasts it out. What happens in the aftermath of that text message hitting every single phone is cars begin to drive erratically, trying to get inside of concrete tunnels and freeways. People are calling their loved ones, 
saying their final goodbyes. For those who can't reach their loved ones through phone call, they're sending emails or text messages to say their final words. College students are running to the tsunami shelters on their campus. People in large gatherings are kind of rushing the doors trying to get out in time. Because all of them are absolutely convinced that there is a missile headed right to them. To make this matter even worse, this is during the North Korean tension, where there was this constant kind of underlying suspicion that at any point there could be a missile sent across, and most likely it would be a nuclear missile. So people are in a state of panic, and what most of us don't realize is it wasn't until 8.38, almost 31 minutes later, that the Hawaiian emergency system sends out a counter alert saying, our bad, JK, not really a missile coming. Had you fooled, right? I mean, that's essentially what happens. In the aftermath, in their debrief, one of the things they realize is that the governor um, had spent the 30 minutes trying to log into his Twitter account, and he couldn't remember the password, so he could at least somehow broadcast. You see, here was this system that was intended to help, help people be prepared for an emergency, and what it did instead was it induced panic. And this is, I think, what Jesus is doing. He understands the whole big system that has been designed and placed inside of us to begin with because he built it. And he's like, look, you need to know something. This system, the system that was meant to invoke action, because of this broken world we live in, it malfunctions. And sometimes it produces anxiety instead. And understanding that there's a bigger system at play and that, that system is sometimes malfunctions. And when it malfunctions, we call that worry. Something in our life that would trigger that worry becomes a way of life for us. And I think it's helpful to remember with context as king what these people would have been like, this kind of crowd gathered around them. It's, it's really difficult when we talk about reading literature, right? I, I can't understand Shakespeare. I remember going with my wife to a Shakespeare in the park and having no clue what was being said on the stage. In fact, I remember Googling because she was an English major. She loves British literature. Um, our Netflix has been completely hijacked by strong British romantic drama with female lead. I'm like, what is this stuff? But she gets it. She understands it. It clicks. She's like, oh, yeah. I'm like, are you part British? What's the deal? How do you understand what they just said? And I'm over there Googling Shakespeare for dummies, trying to follow along in the play. Because I just, I can't, the King James Bible, I remember trying to read that growing up. And I was like, I have no clue what this thing is saying. Shakespeare, no clue. And it can be difficult when you're removed thousands of years, especially to understand it or to know the backdrop. And the historical context for this is first century. You see, we live in a day and an age and that in the last 100 plus years, right? I mean, it was only about 100 years ago that our species even developed the ability to fly in an airplane. That was just the first time. Now we take it for granted that you can today get on a plane and be anywhere. We Take for granted electricity and running water and refrigerators and Wegmans and Target and Walmart and Amazon. We take all of those things for granted in life. We don't wake up with the first thought being, where am I going to eat or what am I going to eat? 
unless you're just hungry. But you don't wake up with a sense of anxiety. For these people, Jesus' statement at the beginning, therefore do not worry about your life, would have made some people chuckle. They would have laughed. They're like, what do you mean? That is my life, worrying. That's what you do. Because there is no food pantries. There is no refrigerator. Every day, one of your first thoughts was to figure out how you were going to get food, period. Because most of the people living at this time were incredibly impoverished and don't have access and resources to the wealthy, which is a small group of people. Majority of them weren't wealthy, they were worriers. This is some of the conditions. Rodney Stark, who's an historian around 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century um, Roman Empire, writes with this, With limited water and means of sanitation, the incredible density of humans and animals is behind our imagination. In fact, if you dig into urban settings during this time period, what you'll find is that their urban density wasn't too off of what urban density would be like in downtown Boston or, or even parts of Manhattan. Humans were thrown together, stacked on top of each other in small, um, prone-to-fire wooden buildings, which is why he says tenement cubicles, these kind of essentially little wooden things kind of stacked on top of each other, up to five or six stories at the time, were smoky because if you tried to cook or anyone in the entire compound tried to cook, it instantly led to everyone else's area being filled with smoke. People trying to cook in their little tiny wooden um, firewood shacks. Um, this was often the reason that fires were one of the biggest threats to, to people living in this day. Houses would typically burn down. Whole cities could be washed in, in ash heaps because of this simple notion of people trying to cook. They were often dark because there was no light. It was damp and dirty. The smell of sweat, urine, feces, and decay... That was the smell of life every single day. We don't have that smell, do we? We walk by like a, a sewer on a, and we're like, man, that smells horrible. But that still is sanitized. Imagine if every day all of those smells come together, and that is the perfume of the people. On the outside, it wasn't any better than the inside. On the outside, it was mud, open sewers. Canals running with all kinds of things, manure, people everywhere. And in fact, even to make it worse, human corpses, and specifically infants, because the Roman Empire was known for a practice of infanticide, where if you didn't want a baby, you left it outside. This was a common practice. Um, it meant that bodies just decayed on the streets. There, there weren't morgues. There weren't systems of picking up dead bodies and burying them. If you were discarded, you were discarded. And so imagine I say all that because it's important to know, what if that's what you wake up with every day? That's what you experience. And then Jesus comes along and says, don't worry about life. And they're like, are you kidding me? That is life. I don't know where I'm going to eat. I don't know if I'm going to make it. The average life expectancy is around 40 at this point. And that was if you were lucky. We look at Jesus' life, dying at age 33 is a great tragedy, and they would have looked at his life as someone who lived well into adult years because the average life expectancy in our nation is 80 plus. So it's a different world. And Jesus is trying to call them 
to a different way of thinking. Because this word he uses, worry, is all about the thought life. He's like, look, don't get consumed up here with what's happening out there. So what does he say? Verse 26, he goes on, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? You have to realize, so for us, you know, part of your stressful part of your day is to figure out what you're going to wear. That wasn't a part of their day. You had one article of clothing. You had an underwear piece, and then you had a piece that covered the underwear piece. Okay? And it wasn't a fruit of a loom. It was just a piece of fabric that you wore underneath your bigger fabric. So clothing was a big deal because if any of one of those got damaged in the course of everyday life, that's a problem. You don't swing by Target and pick up a new one. And so he says, See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon. Solomon would have been, uh, when you think about the wealthiest person, so like Jeff Bezos today, people consider him like kind of the wealthiest, like he's, man, he's built this empire. People would have had a similar kind of connotation when they heard Solomon. Solomon was the most powerful, well-dressed, put-together, most successful Jew in Jewish history. And they're like, not even Kim Kardashian. In all of her clothes. And this is what he's doing here when he says Solomon. And all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, because grass was used to, to fuel, get furnaces rolling, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And so this is what Jesus does. Here's his punchline. He's set it up. You know who these people are. And he says to them, I want you to change the way you think about worry. One, he makes a very astute observation in verse 27 when he says to them, um, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? He's like, let's just be real, people. Worry does not even work. It doesn't even work if you worry. Worry is future-oriented. It's typically fueled by catastrophic thinking, right? The, all these crazy scenarios of what's going to happen to you or your family or your children. These kind of worst case scenarios, and it starts to creep in and take over your life. It's future oriented, but you're confident you're going to predict the future. That's what worry is. It's future. It's predicting the future. And he's like, it doesn't even work. The reason it's like you can't, even, you can't even make this small thing. Like you can't even grow an inch through worrying. It's like you have control over your body, and you can't even make your body grow one more inch through worry. But he's pointing out something that I think is actually really, really insightful. Most of us, the ones who are really good at worrying, you know how to predict the future. But when's the last time you went and fact-checked your results? Think about the last thing you worried about. Not the current thing you're currently worried about, because you're convinced you know that one. But the one that you, you knew last time, the last thing you worried about, were you right? The one before that, were you right about that? Were you right about the one before that? It, you see, if, 
you knew everything, like Jesus does, you could call people out and say, hey, how about write this down on your tally list? Fact check it. Have you been right recently? And the astounding answer is no. Every once in a while, we get lucky. And we think, we forget all the times we're wrong. We remember the one or two times we're right, and we think we're good at it. We're like children. My daughter beats me in Monopoly, and all of a sudden, she wants to challenge the world. I'm like, baby, I'll let you win. You're not a world champion. But we fall into that same trap. We think we're good at it. And he's like, look, you're not even good at worrying. It doesn't even work. Go back and look at your... The fact that you're here proves your worrying was wrong. Because these people are obsessed and worrying about things that are required for life. They would laugh at the things we worry about. They worried about necessities. They would argue that we worry about niceties. And he's like, the fact that you're here proves worrying doesn't work. Because you were so worried about what you were going to eat. But then he goes on. He actually introduces in this very subtle, illustrative way. Remember, the context makes this passage come alive. They're on the hillside of the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful, picturesque area. And in fact, this area, even today, is known for, with the Sea of Galilee, it's wildlife and it's wildflowers. Now, Jesus is not sitting in an amphitheater with these people. They're not in a room like this. They're outside. And so when he says, consider the birds, he points these beautiful, majestic herons that fly over the Sea of Galilee. He's like, look at them. Look at them. Thought about them? They don't have a pantry. They, they don't even have a plan. They just get up and they go to work. And what do they find every day? Enough to get by. And then he says, he pivots from considering the birds to considering the flowers. So they go from looking around to looking down. You see, the Sea of Galilee, in fact, here are a couple of pictures of it. Even today, if you went there, what you would you would be amazed at the beauty of the flowers growing all over the Sea of Galilee's hillsides. I mean, stunning flowers, 10 inches with crowns of beauty and some of the most vibrant colors. And they just come alive and paint the Sea of Galilee. I mean, look at that. That's like gorgeous. This is where these people are sitting when Jesus is talking about worry. He's like, oh, that flower, that beautiful flower you just sat on. Solomon couldn't even dress like that. He couldn't even recreate the colors that that has. He's trying to challenge them to shift from what if thinking, which dominates and permeates our worry, to a different form of thinking that is what is thinking. Not what if, what is very subtle difference, just one letter, but major shift. What if? What if? Right? Well, what if this doesn't happen? Or what if then they don't get into this school? Or what if she doesn't say this? Or what if my boss does this? Or what if they think I'm stupid when I make the presentation? I mean, you fill in the blanks. You've got plenty of what ifs. And so did the crowd listening that day. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Not what if. 
What is? Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Look around. Pay attention. God's taking care of all of these things around you. And they're here today and gone tomorrow. And yet, they all seem to be okay. So what does it look like? Let me get really practical. What is thinking? What is thinking isn't just uh, like positive or even gratitude, which are both good things. What is thinking is reality thinking. What if thinking is not reality. It's future-oriented. So what is is present. It sees the good. It sees the bad. But it also has an understanding of what is unknown, which is really important. What's the unpredictable piece in this whole equation? And so to get really tangible with what does it look like, to instead, instead of being worked up by worry, to work your worry instead is to schedule a time. To, to put feet on this thing. Schedule a time to worry. Schedule it. If you're concerned about the presentation you have to make it work two weeks from now, schedule a time to think about it. So, okay, at 2 p.m., from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. on Tuesday, I'm going to write worry time. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to have what is thinking about it. I'm going to reflect on this. I'm going to unpack this. I'm going to, and instead of feeling panic, because when you schedule it, it, it communicates something. It's on your schedule. Instead of panicking about it, plan instead. It's like, okay, you know what? I've got, I'm really panicky about my daughter and her friends and this tension. Okay, schedule time tomorrow to worry about that. And when you sit down, all of a sudden you're going to say, well, you know, okay, what are some of the issues? What is happening in my daughter's life? Or what is happening in our finances? Not what if, but what is. And when you start to think through the what is scenarios, when your brain kicks into what is, not what if, and you've scheduled it, what happens is you typically will start to plan instead of panic. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's like, pay attention First of all, remember just by sitting down that you've already proven that your previous worries didn't work out because you're here. You still have the job. You still have the marriage. I mean, no one looking at me thinks, man, I wonder if he's got food tomorrow. Right? I'm like, the mirror reminds me every day. I've been okay. Right? I mean, there's just these subtle things he's trying to clue and tune our mind into. And using the illustrations that he used, he's not denying hard work. This isn't like sit back, don't worry, be happy. This isn't a Bob Marley-like song. This isn't Jimmy Buffett living, right? This is like, this is real, okay? Work, plan, it's good. Just don't sit passive in panic mode. That work, that worry was originally born out of. A system that was meant to invoke action, not anxiety. But because we live in a broken world with broken bodies and broken minds, that system malfunctions and it leads to anxiety instead of action. And this is a really important point that he's trying to make. But see, in the course of thinking about this, I continued to ask the question, like, why is Jesus, because he pivots here in a few seconds, and he goes on to he moves out of this practical realm to this really profound thought around worry. Where he begins to invoke this idea of this deeper underlying issue attached to worry. And he's making a, deep, a deeper point about worry in the first place. A point that I think is aimed specifically at the group sitting closest to him, the original audience, 
for this conversation in the first place. Which is for some of you, let me go ahead and give you, this is the part where you can keep listening and you can build up your artillery for things you don't like about Christians. Because now he's pivoted. He's no longer talking to the crowd, people who are not sure if they believe or what they believe. They're just curious about Jesus, but they're not committed to Jesus. Now he's turning the conversation to those who've committed to Jesus. This is, these are the Christians. And he turns to them and he starts to have a very different type of conversation. Even going as far as to say to them, um, you of little faith. Because he's trying to make them aware of the deeper issue at work when we worry. Uh, about 10 years ago, I had a phone call from a friend of mine. He was, he's one of those guys who's kind of connected to different people. And he called me and said, hey, can you get down to Charlotte, North Carolina? And I said, depends. He said, well, I just got given two free tickets to the Richard Petty drive-along experience. Now, you may not know about any much about NASCAR, and that's okay. But Googling it quickly communicated to me, this seems like a pretty cool thing. First of all, it's hundreds of dollars to be able to do it in the first place. And what happens is it happens at various um, major NASCAR speed parks around America. And he'd gotten two free tickets, and he um, was going to go, and he was like, hey, you should come down too, and we could do this together. And you essentially ride along in a NASCAR. Of course, it goes really, really fast. And you get to ride a course for three laps. And so I got to Charlotte. And you drive into this, like, massive, I mean, this thing is a monstrosity of a compound. It's two miles, almost two miles full around in the middle is this pit crew area, and you get to drive into this tunnel that goes underneath the track, and you arrive in this pit crew area, and they say, come on in, and you walk in, you watch this video, and then you sign a bunch of documents that saying, if you die, you promise not to sue them, and even more documents, if you get hurt, you promise not to sue them, you know, all those kind of confidence builders, and then you walk up, and they put you in a suit, and they put a, like, I'm, I don't know if it's one of those, if case you catch on fire, it's supposed to slow the fire down suits. And then they put a helmet on your head. I'm not talking about bike helmet. I mean, am I going to the moon or around the track kind of helmet? And they like lodge it on my head and there's these little like speakers on the inside. And they're like, mic check one, two, mic check one, two. And I'm like, and then you have to like crawl into the car because there are no doors on NASCARs. So you like essentially reverse being born and you get into um, this tiny little window and you get into a seat and then they strap you in with straps that are like that thick. And it's click, 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 click. And then the guy gets in and he starts the car and it's like, whoa, 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 and the car's just shaking. And your entire body, you, your heart was pounding before, but you, you're not 100% sure because you can't really feel it anymore because all your organs are pretty much pounding at the same time. And you're sitting there, and these people push the car out of the pit crew, and you hear him come across the radio, and it's like, it's time to begin the Richard Petty driving experience. And you're like, and, and then so he starts to hit the, like, he's like, and that's like first gear. 
And, and you start to kind of feel your body sort of shaking and being drawn back. And then he goes, Wom! and you're in like gear two at this point. And now you're on the straightaway and you realize this thing is ginormous. And I don't know if you've ever been to a NASCAR track, but it turns out those little corners and curves on the television look flat. They look like walls that you're driving at when you're actually physically in the car. The embankment at Charlotte Motor Speedway is 23 degrees. It is essentially a ramp that you would drive up. But instead, this guy over here is going into third gear, and my body is shaking even more, and the car is getting faster. And the closer we get to the wall that we're headed towards, he's speeding up. And at that point, I start praying prayers like, I didn't know this was how I was going down. I didn't know this was the end. I would have lived differently, God. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. I mean, I am like, did I have a will? Did I say, my, did I say the last things to my wife I should have said? Because we are still speeding up. And all of a sudden, we hit turn one, and my body went, and we go whipping around turn one, and he keeps speeding up in the turn two, which immediately comes after turn one and then we hit that thing and now I'm over here and my body is violently shaking and then we go back into the back straight away and the strangest thing starts to happen across my face which is extremely flattened at this point in the seat violently shaking the corners of my lips just go <laughs> because he's still speeding up going into turn three he hasn't slowed down because the average speed for Charlotte Motor Speedway is close to 160 miles per hour, and we hadn't hit it yet. We're only around 110, 120 in the first turn. He's still speeding up. But something happened after turn two. The rest of those two laps were the most amazing experience I'd ever had. And it was because something on the inside clicked for me. The very thing that I think Jesus was trying to have clicked for them. You see, the first, the first turn, if you had been watching the video of Inside the Car, you would have seen my hand trying to do this because I wanted to grab hold of the steering wheel. Because I was like, this fool doesn't have a clue what he's doing. You don't speed up going into a turn. You slow down. Like, I'm pretty sure that's like driver ed 101. When you make a turn, slow down. It's safer that way. Not speed up. And I'm like wanting to grab the steering wheel because obviously he's blacked out or something. He's not even cognizant anymore. But what happened by the time I finished turn, through, turn two is I'd begin to trust that even though I didn't understand, even though this thing was bigger than me, even though this thing was still faster than I had ever been in a car my entire life, that he actually knew what he was doing. And the reason a smile began to creep into the corners of my lips was because around turn two, I started to trust him. I started to trust that the head and the heart of the one guiding the hands of this car actually was in control and understood what he was doing, even if I didn't. This is what Jesus is trying to point to. Ultimately, that's at the heart of our struggle with worry. It's an issue of control. When we feel like we're no longer in control, something in us ramps up to that degree. And our worrying is an attempt to 
regain control. But it's a fool's errand, isn't it? Because we don't have control. And Jesus, throughout this message, has, has been using this phrase over and over that has perhaps even missed your ears as I've read it, even if this is the first time to church. But it wouldn't have missed the ears of anyone listening that day. When he says, your heavenly Father, says, he says it multiple times in this passage. He keeps using, your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father. And for us, maybe even if you were at a distance and you're around Christianity, this phrasing doesn't seem strange. But you have to realize what was so radical about Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount was up until this point, Jewish theology, which is Jesus is Jewish, and he's teaching from a Jewish theological document called the Old Testament in Christian belief system. Jewish theology did not have verbiage for your heavenly father. That did not exist. Jewish rabbis, famous Jewish rabbi teachers, had not used the word your heavenly father. This was an obscure, strange thing for Jesus to say, and he's going to the very heart of worry. He's saying, by the way, why am I telling you not to worry? It's because your heavenly father. And then, why am I telling you what is thinking? Because your heavenly father. And the people listening that day, especially those sitting around, would have leaned in and been like, wait a second. Jesus, are you, the worry thing I get, but are you saying God cares about me? Your heavenly father? That's so personal. Everyone in that audience had been fathered or at least seen fathering. Maybe it was bad fathering, like some of us had experienced. But even with bad fathering, you at least have the beginning working definition of what a good would look like. It'd just be the opposite of what you experienced. And these people are like, God cares about me like that? I mean, I have a daughter. And I think about the way I love and lead her, and I'm like, man, like I'm imperfect and I'm broken. And, and yet I would never give my daughter snakes when she really needs sustenance for life. I would leverage all that I'd have to, for her good. Like, and he's saying that your father in heaven knows what you need even before you do. And that he's there for you. He's like, look, I, you have to realize that part of the heart of worry is that you want to control. And after some point, you have to recognize you can't control. But the good news is that the one who is in control cares about you. Who knows what you're going through. And who loves you. Your heavenly Father. This is why he's like frantic worry and faith can't coexist. This is why he says you have little, little faith. Because frantic and faith don't mesh very well. Panic and peace don't coexist. Because when you realize that your heavenly Father, speaking to these, like he cares and he knows and he's in control, even when you're not, it changes the whole dynamic around worry. So let me put everything I just said together and then we're done. So imagine you're afraid you're going to lose your job. And you wake up because this is what this word is invoking. This is, this is anxiety that wakes you up in the middle of the night. 
You're fearful you're going to lose your job. You feel like it's just lurking on the, the horizon. So to take all of this passage and to put a how to it and an illustration, you wake up and you feel it. Your heart's pounding. You're sweating. It's not because of the temperature in the house. It's because you're in full on fight and flight mode. That system that God gave you to prepare, that system that God gave you to be able to, to produce action has been activated. But it's malfunctioned, and now you feel this thing called worry that he's been illustrating. And as you're laying in the bed with your heart pounding, probably angry because if somebody's in the bed beside you, they're not even thinking about it. They're sleeping peacefully. How dare them? They're not even, they're worthless. They don't even know what's going on. And you're just lonely and isolated, feeling your heart pound along with your thoughts in your mind. And this, what is thinking versus what if thinking is the first thing you go to. Instead of being worked up by worry, you make worry work for you. And so you would say, okay, I'm really afraid. I guess this is, I don't know, maybe this is the week. I don't like the way he talked to me on Friday. I don't like the way she looked at me in our meeting on Thursday. They've ignored proposal after proposal. This is what happened to Jen. I saw it. This is what's going to happen to me. And instead of the allowing what if to kick into gear then, then you take a step back and you say, okay, well, you know what? I need a plan. So what is going on is that right now I do have this job. And if I was putting a guess to this thing, maybe I have a 50% chance of making it through the end of this year. So if I got to the end of this year, then you know what? I'm going to go ahead and schedule some time tomorrow during my lunch break. Okay, so tomorrow at lunch, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to work my worry. I'm going to write down the names of three people because... Statistically, it's been proven that it's your weak ties that lead to new jobs. So I'm going to reach out to some former colleagues at old work sites and just email them and see if I can connect with them. Okay. And then, you know what? I'm, I'm really concerned, probably what's even underneath all of this, where the what-ifs would go if I'd let them go there, is I'm concerned about our finances. So what if, okay, all right. So what is is coming in is what I've been paid, but what if? Tomorrow, I sat down and I worked out a budget that only existed off 80% of what I was making right now. And then I've just put the rest of the 20% in savings. That way, I have a little bit of a buffer. Maybe even 75. Could I, I'll, you know, I'll sacrifice cable, okay? And, but I'm going to do all that tomorrow at lunch. I'm going to bring my own lunch because that'll save money. And I'm going to go sit out on the park bench in the courtyard that I like there, and I'm just going to work on this. And then you turn. You've determined you're going to work your worry tomorrow, and now you've pivoted. And you say, God, I woke up in the middle of the night with this on my heart and mind. And I feel a lot of fear. I feel a lot of uncertainty, and everything in me wants to reach up and grab the steering wheel. And I know I can't control it. I can't control my boss. I can't control how they respond or the cuts that they make. But I'm so glad that God, before I woke up with it, you already knew about it. In fact, God, if I think about it, I've been in moments like this before, and I'm 
yet I'm still in my bed in my house because you've never failed me. You've never neglected me. You've never missed me. I've never missed a meal. I've never had a night where I was cold because we couldn't have heat. And you start not just looking forward with your schedule, not just looking up asking God to step into the situation, but then you do practice the gratitude and you look back. And you focus on what he's done before. And you come to the realization, God, you care. You've been there all along. And this is what this looks like. Because Jesus that day was trying to teach us. He was trying to point out that in a broken world, things are broken. And the system that was meant to serve us, often we become slaves to it. But, if instead of being worked up by worry, we're willing to make it work for us, then in the end, we can trust sleeping at night, knowing that the God of heaven and earth, the God who invites all of us, even today, to his family, to become, for him to be your heavenly father, is working even while you're weary and stressing, and concerned. And so let's start making worry work for us instead of being worked up by it. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you're exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.